And as you just heard this morning, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 to 21. If you've yet to find time to open your Bibles, uh, please do. If you don't have a Bible with you, I invite you to take the one that's under your seat or the seats nearby. If you don't own a Bible, this is our gift to you. Uh, feel free to take it home. Please do take it home and read it. Um, it's our gift to you. So Ephesians 5, verse 18 to 21 is on page 978 of those Bibles. Now I'm going to pray for us one more time to calm our hearts and to fix our eyes on God's word and his purposes for this hour. Father, we thank you so much that every time we open your word, you are speaking. We count it a great joy that your word is living and active. We count it a great joy and comfort to know that you are the God who is actively and currently reigning, that you are the one who knows every joy, every struggle, every fear, anxiety, concern, and burden that was brought by us into this room. And yet, Lord, we count it a great blessing to also know that the consolations of your words cheer our hearts. And so I pray, Lord, that you would fill me with your spirit as I seek to speak to your people from your word. I pray that your word would be our rule, your spirit would be our teacher, your glory our concern, your son our joy, and that what would be said in this time would glorify Jesus and stir our hearts to ongoing affection for him and obedience to him in all of life. We love you, Lord. We need you. And we thank you for what you have done and what you will do. It's in your son's name we ask all these things. Amen. Amen. So what is the secret to a healthy church? What is the secret to a vibrant marriage? What's the secret to a loving family, fruitful employment, a long life of prayer? Interestingly, these questions that you and I wrestle with from time to time are going to be explicitly addressed by the Apostle Paul beginning in today and throughout, throughout like the next four to five weeks. See, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 to 21, Paul is essentially opening the front door to the back half of this letter that we've been looking at for the last couple months. And in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 to 21, Paul brings us back to this gospel reminder. This reminder that in Jesus Christ, the gospel gives us more than just good advice for a better life. As if you and I need another book for that. The gospel is not a good advice for a better life book. The gospel is good news for new life. The gospel is good news for new life. And as we've been unpacking Ephesians, the refrain of this new life and this good news has anchored in two words, in him. In Christ Jesus is the one that Paul keeps coming back to over and over. In Christ Jesus, the Christian is offered forgiveness of sin, new life, brought into a new community, given a new peace, and commissioned with a new mission. And in chapters 4 to 6 of this letter, he's been telling us, how does this plane of theology land on the runway of our daily lives? And today in verse 18 to 21, he's going to tell the church specifically I want you to be a spirit-filled people. Be filled with the spirit is his big idea. Be filled with the third person of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, as he leads and guides all that we say and do. And interestingly, it's where Paul begins in saying be filled with the spirit because he knows that in the successive weeks where we talk about marriage, parenting, uh, families, and work, 
which are the next chapters in the scriptures, as if the Bible, you ever wonder if the Bible has anything to say about my real life? Well, guess what? (laughs) It has plenty to say about it. And Paul begins by saying, none of this is possible to even talk about unless you are filled with the Spirit. So church, verse 18, big idea for us, be filled with the Spirit. And what Paul is going to do in these short verses is he's going to give us a command. What not to do, what to do. And then he's going to give the church some confirmations, some evidences, some signs of what the Spirit-filled church looks like and for us to increasingly pray towards. So keep the Bibles open, please. We're going to, we're going to be in verse 18 at first. We're going to see the command, what not to do and what to do based on this in Christ Jesus status. Verse 18. Paul continues last week. We talked about walking the wise walk. And he, that conversation picks up in verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But, on the positive side, be filled with the Spirit. Let's step back and remember who's Paul write, who is Paul writing to. The first century Ephesian church. And Ephesus, if you're not familiar, was a pretty wild place, like capital W kind of wild place. It was more like, I don't know if you've ever been there, New Orleans at Mardi Gras. Or you've seen the pictures, heard the stories. Much more like New Orleans at Mardi Gras than Marion during Holy Week. This place was a wild city on the Mediterranean coast in the first century, and it was where business from all over the region was exchanged, and it wasn't just an exchange of business and ideas, but it was the exchange of religious thought. Paganism, not Christianity, was the dominant trend amongst spiritually inclined people. And the pagans of this time would often use alcohol as a catalyst or an accelerant to fuel their supposed seeking of false gods. See, alcohol was, for some, a false god, but for others, it was a means of pursuing godlike joy apart from the true God. And so the Apostle Paul is addressing a religious and a spiritual issue when he says, don't get drunk on wine, for that's debauchery. And when the Apostle Paul speaks with this concern to the first century church, because any time the pagans would see and hear supernatural things being done by the original church, they chalked it up to alcohol. They thought there's no way that any of this could be done except for the use of and the dependence on alcohol. Remember Acts chapter 2? Think with me back to Acts chapter 2. Pentecost. The Holy Spirit descends for the very first time on the very first disciples, and they're preaching the very first sermon, and lo and behold, the one sermon that's preached in one language is heard by a plurality of different people in their own native languages. The crowds in verse 13 were said to be amazed, perplexed. Had to be alcohol, right? What else could be causing this? But Peter says, no. Guys, he says in verse uh, 13, they are not filled with wine. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. And then verse 33, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Paul says this is a spiritual and a religious issue to address. And so don't get drunk on wine. Church, I know what the competing culture is going after. I know they use alcohol as their main substitute for God and their main substance to pursue God-like joy. Don't do it. It's not worth it. 
Look what it leads to. It leads to harm for them personally, and it doesn't even lead to the true joy of knowing the true God because he's not found in losing control to alcohol. And then he says, later in the verse, for that is debauchery, the ultimate why. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. I don't know about you, but debauchery is not a word that I use, <laughs> like, day to day. Like, I actually had to look this up, like, what does debauchery mean? And in part, it, it means more than a subtle suggestion. Like, if something is debaucherous, you don't kind of hope someone ab- avoids it or abstains from it. You hope they totally abandon it. You hope they run from it, because debauchery at its root, I've come to find out, means abandoning, abandoning life. Uh, the pursuit of getting controlled by wine is debauchery. It's abandoning the true joy, the true life of being controlled and so overflowing in Christ-like joy that you've settled for a false joy. And it's not even a real joy. This false joy in getting drunk leads to real bondage. And we see it in vertically and horizontally. See, horizontally, being drunk impedes our ability to love others. Vertically, we're so out of control that we can't submit to God's control over and in us through the Spirit. And so we're reminded that any sort of false, fleeting, fake joy that being drunk on wine could offer, God, by the Holy Spirit, offers something so much greater and so much more true. It is the true joy that liberates you from the eventual bondage of getting drunk on wine. But what about us? (laughs) See, Paul is writing to the first century, but he's also writing to the 2019 Carterville Church. What about us? Maybe do not get drunk on wine hits you hard today. Because for a long time, you've hidden a problem of being controlled by alcohol. Maybe you come from a family in which you've seen alcohol abuse be so deleterious to your walk and your life and everyone around you. And you hear this and it just brings up so much pain for you. Whether it's pain that you need healing from or whether it's a current struggle that you need help to walk free from, I want to know about that. We need to talk about things like that, things that are hard. And if this hits you hard today as the application from this text of don't get drunk, well, my encouragement is more than a subtle suggestion. It's a strong plea. Do not get drunk on wine. In so doing, you abandon the true life of knowing and being with God and his people in the way he created you to be. And if you need help, talk to me. We want you to walk in the light with this and not shamefully try to hide it in the darkness. We heard a couple weeks ago, anything that's brought and made visible by the light of the gospel is the entrance into new life. No longer walking in darkness. What about the rest of us? Maybe do not get drunk on wine is not the thing that you're most tempted to get controlled by. For some of us, we might be tempted to be drunk on power in relationships at work or in the home. Some of us might be tempted to be drunk on emotions of fear and anxiety. When we look into the future, and we wonder, how in the world is that bill going to get paid? How are my kids going to grow up and know the Lord? How are my, my health problems going to be resolved? Some of us are, are drunk on other things, maybe the pursuit of love in a wrong relationship that we know will just lead to end and, and struggle and pain. 
What are you potentially controlled by, even in this moment, that would compete for the Spirit's control in your life? What are you so desire? What are you so looking for in this life? If I only had, fill in the blank, if I could only control this upcoming situation, this scenario, then I'd have peace. Then I'd have meaning. Then I don't even know if I'd really long for the Spirit's control in my life because I'd feel like I was in control. What are you tempted to be drunk on, so to say, quote, unquote, or under the influence of more than God himself? Whatever it is, I promise you, you will not find God's true joy in that God-like competitor. Don't get drunk on it. And finally, before we move forward, I also want to commend us not to get drunk on self-righteousness in our approach to alcohol. And here's what I mean. This text warns explicitly about drunkenness. Look with me again. It says, do not get drunk. We obviously know that means. Don't be intoxicated. Don't be so overly controlled by alcohol as to lose self-control and not be able to be controlled for God and, and by God for his purposes. We know that in throughout the rest of Scripture, at times, wine was used for illness. As Psalm 104.15 says, it gladdens the heart. And you may have made a personal decision to abstain from alcohol for good reasons, and that's fine if it's a matter of conviction. But I want to remind us, this passage says, don't get drunk on wine. Vineyards are not satanic. Drunkenness is idolatrous. Drunkenness is idolatrous. Do not get drunk on wine. But, on the positive side, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. True joy. Taking up real life. Look with me at the end of the passage. Be filled with the Spirit. Paul is telling us, he doesn't want you to be kind of added to by the Spirit or supplement your life with the Spirit. He wants you to be so filled with, controlled by, overrun with, and made complete by God's very presence. The very same Spirit that was at work when creation happened. The same Spirit that was at work that raised Christ from the dead. The same Spirit that filled the Old Testament temple, fills the New Testament church, This is the third person of the Trinity. It's not an it. It's a he. He's living and active. And we are commended to be filled by the Spirit. So what in the world does that mean? (laughs) What in the world does that look like? Be filled with the Spirit. That's like the ultimate church slogan to put out front. We are the Spirit-filled church. (laughs) Everyone would love to say that. But what does that look like? How do we pursue that? Well, interestingly, Paul's going to tell us what it looks like in verse 19 to 21. But before we get there, if we just look at this passage, we see a lot about what it means to be filled with the Spirit. First and foremost, we see that it's an ongoing need that the church has. Here's how I know this. Look again. Be filled with the Spirit. The word in the original is a verb that's in the present tense. An ongoing action. Just like don't get drunk is not something you tell an alcoholic one time and hope that's it. It's a present tense verb, an ongoing action, continuing implication. Be filled with the Spirit. Present tense verb, ongoing need for filling of the Holy Spirit. And here's where theology matters. See, at conversion, the Christian is filled with the Holy Spirit, indwelled by God's very presence, comes to live in you. If anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to Christ, is what Romans 8 9 tells us. 
but the Spirit is the one who seals us and assures us that we are God's own forever. Paul said this in Ephesians chapter 1. Remember verse 13 to 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed, sealed, marked as his own forever by the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee. That's the guarantee, the down posit. The down payment. (laughs) You knew what I meant. The down payment of our eternal inheritance. The Spirit assures us of our salvation once we've come to know Christ as Savior. And the Spirit matures us, grows us up in Christ-likeness. Remember 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul tells us the maturing work of the Holy Spirit is this. As you and I together behold the glory of God, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We have a continual need to be filled by the Spirit. He is the one who assures us of salvation, and He is the one who matures us by living in and working with us to conform us to Christ's character. So we have a continual need. Just like my two-year-old has a continual need to be fed vegetables and fruits day after day, if I want to see him grow up and to be a strong young man, the Christian has the continual need to be filled by the Spirit day after day. And so we ask, Father, would you fill us in this church with your Spirit And then would we be ready to submit to him in all things? See, the second thing we see about being filled with the Spirit is it requires a submission, a complete submission, because the Spirit wants to completely fill us. Be filled with the Spirit. Not just kind of welled up with the Spirit. Not just added to by the Spirit, but filled with the Spirit. Paul is telling us he wants the Holy Spirit to monopolize you, (laughs) to reside in you first, and then to preside over everything you do, taking up a monopoly over your thoughts, words, actions, and affections. I don't know if you guys have ever played the board game Monopoly. Anyone familiar with board game Monopoly? My, My wife's family, big board game family growing up, and so when we got married, we tried to, you know, espouse some of their family traditions of way I can love my wife, live with her in an understanding way. I'll play Monopoly. Little did I know that, A, I'm terrible at board games. She, B, she's like a professional at board games. And when it gets to Monopoly, her face is like purple by now. When it gets to playing Monopoly, she is a ruthless tycoon. Yes, I will pay for this later. But the first time we played it, she literally wanted to buy up every single piece as fast as possible and put me in, like, the eternal bankruptcy, which, of course, is the goal of the game, but was totally demoralizing to a board game novice like me. But she wanted to monopolize the board, filling up the entire thing with her properties, buildings upon hotels, upon skyscrapers, I think she even pulled out. It was a total taking over. No room for me. And the same way, The Spirit wants to comprehensively, completely fill the Christian to push out any evidence, any possible living of the flesh in us. And all throughout Scripture, we hear the dichotomy, flesh on one hand, the the, 
not-so-good part of us, the fleshly desires, spiritual desires on the other, the God-glorifying, God-given ones, the Spirit works in us to monopolize us, reside in us, and then preside over every single one of your thoughts, actions, affections, and attitudes. Romans chapter 8 tells us the wondrous good news of the Spirit-filled life, and it says, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. The Christian who is submitted to and longing to be monopolized by the Spirit of God will submit in everything, even their thoughts, their actions, their words. The board of our bodies and our souls monopolized by the power of God's Spirit living in us and presiding over us and controlling everything that we do. Brings up a good question, at least it did for me this week. Where might the Spirit be seeking to monopolize you, but you're not yet ready to submit? Where might God's Spirit be seeking to monopolize your thoughts, your words, your actions, and lead you towards something that's confirmed in Scripture as good and God-glorifying, but you're just on, on like sitting back on your chair and saying, ah, I don't know if that's for me. I'm a little too busy to put that sin to death right now. I'm a little too busy to take up that good thing that might require a, a not-so-good thing to be put down. See, here's two ways that the Spirit often leads us to respond and submit. First and foremost, to make no provision for the flesh, to put sin to death. The Spirit is always working to make us like Christ, push out fleshly desires, conform us to His character. Where might the Spirit be prompting you to put sin to death? Where might that be happening, and how are you responding? And maybe it's not uh, putting sin to death. Maybe it's just taking up a God-glorifying thing that requires putting down even good things of this life. How might the Spirit be leading you to rightly prioritize, make the best use of your time, as we talked about last week, the greater kingdom initiatives, even if it means your self-kingdom must take a step down? See, you and I, we lead busy lives, don't we? It's hard to say, I'd like to do something else. And it might not mean, it might not require you to do another thing. It might just require you to reevaluate the to do and the to don't list in light of what are God's priorities, His kingdom desires. Maybe it means checking out that small group. Well, Jameson, you don't know how busy I am. You don't know how crazy my work schedule is or how crazy my kids are. Well, if you come to my house, you'll see craziness of all kinds. But maybe the Lord is inviting you to make Wednesday nights a regular occasion, to gather with and speak to his people, or a small group. How is the Spirit calling you to submit, and how are you responding to the Spirit's leading? And then finally, being filled with the Spirit we see is a communal command. You notice Paul doesn't say, hey, you two, three, and four Christian leaders in the church, be filled with the Spirit. He's continuing this letter that's addressed to the entire church. And in this letter that's addressed to the entire church, he says, be filled with the Spirit. Not just for the spiritual rock stars, quote-unquote, the guys we look to on the stage as they sing the wonderful songs. No, this is for you and I together, sitting in the pews or standing on the stage. Be filled with the Spirit. And I know you need it because Paul is going to talk about marriage, parenting, work, and prayer in the next few weeks. Try to do any of those without the Spirit and see how well it goes. 
doesn't go that well. The Christian life is impossible unless we are seeking to be filled by and submitting to the Spirit's leading. So church, this is my encouragement. Be filled with the Spirit. And we do that by asking. Asking God, would you continue to fill us with the Spirit? So my big application for you is pray for that. Pray for our church to be a Spirit-filled and a Spirit-responsive body in Christ. Pray for that now. Pray for that today. Pray for it every day. We need the Spirit to lead us. And then finally, what does the Spirit-filled church look like? Verse 19 to 21, where we will conclude the back half of this section. Verse 19 to 21, confirmations, evidences of the Spirit-filled church. Go back to verse 19 with me. The Spirit-filled church will be addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. If I were to ask you, what does the Spirit-filled church look like? What would come to mind? What would come to mind for you? See, on one hand, some of us come from backgrounds where the spirit-filled church means something like a circus. You go in and you see and smell and hear things that you just can't believe. And for some of us from a higher liturgy background, we hear spirit-filled church and we think like mechanical stage production, everything done to a T by the proper second. But Paul says the spirit-filled church is less circus and less stage production and more joyful family. Less circus, less stage, more joyful, biblical family. The kind of family, as we're going to unpack, is speaking to each other, singing to one another, and thanking God the Father, and then submitting to one another. I've spoken with a few of you this morning, and I've heard that you've either gone to or are going to a family reunion soon. Apparently, summers is like the time to do this sort of thing. You get together with all ages people from different states, backgrounds, different, you, you know what, you, everyone's got the Uncle Joe that they're looking forward to, not really seeing at the family reunion. But we go to the family reunions, and we enjoy ourselves. We're with people that we share a blood relationship with. We're with people that we, you know, we see Aunt Sally bring the same dish year after year, and we're so looking forward to that tradition. It brings us comfort. Family reunions are a picture of a joyful family gathering. Our Sunday mornings, our Tuesday small groups, our Wednesday fellowship meals, they're meant to be like little family reunions, previewing the family reunion of eternity when all of God's people gather for all of eternity, all of time, and celebrating the shared meal of the bread of life because of our shared bloodline that goes back to the cross at Calvary. The Spirit-filled church is the church that loves Jesus and is anchored in Him and therefore speaks, sings, thanks, and submits. Look with me at verse 19, the first part. The Spirit-filled church is addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Addressing, speaking. We are using our words like you did so generously during our greeting this morning to speak to one another, to address, say, hi, hello, my name is so-and-so. 
But the Apostle Paul says the words that we share in the church will go beyond hunting, grilling, and fishing, many of our Father's Day plans, all good things. But the words that we share will eventually take on this gospel tone. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Those are the words that we need more than anything. The words that remind us that you and I share this affinity and this relationship with one another because of Christ Jesus. It's the word of Christ that dwells richly in the church and then gets richly shared by his people. I was so encouraged last evening. Um, My wife had the occasion to speak. I've spoken not so well about her. I need to speak very well of her. And I have ample reason to. Last evening, she had the opportunity to counsel and to care for another woman in the church who was mutually caring for my wife at the same time. And, and, you know, they were talking, how are you guys doing? How's life going? And honestly, they were quick to both say, I'm anxious about this, about that, about the other. And, And because there was a gospel tone, a gospel fluency, a desire to not let things stay at surface level, but instead speak in psalms, hymns, spiritual, they weren't singing on the phone, but they were taking the truth of Scripture, applying it to their lives because it had been stored up in their heart and now flooding out in their words. And they were able to comfort each other with eternal good news, more so than just a pat on the back. They said, remember the promise that we have in 1 Peter 5? That we can cast all our cares and anxieties on God, humbling ourselves under his mighty hand, and know that he cares for us. Do you know that God has a mighty and a caring hand? That's the peace we need amidst our anxiety. See, when we address one another with the gospel, we realize that the good news for new life has bearing on every single thing we do. Not just the fun stuff in life, although it makes every joy better, but we store up God's word in our heart so we can send it out in our words. The spirit-filled church has much more conversation of God language, God talk, in our hearts and in our words than even on our walls and our bumper stickers, which is really good to put God's word everywhere. But first and foremost, let's store it up and then send it out, addressing one another. And then we get to sing. Verse 19, singing. And making melody to the Lord with your heart. Why do we sing on Sundays? Why why do you sing on Sundays? We had some non-Christian friends in our church in Philadelphia. Why are you guys all singing? What is this collective karaoke? Like, you guys all sing the same songs, and you all know the words. And for some of us, it's like, We don't even think twice about it. And then for others of us, we sit here and we stand next to someone who's singing, and you think it's like American Idol tryout. Like this person is such a good singer that I can hardly bring myself to sing. But we don't sing for horizontal approval. We sing because of vertical joy. This song or this passage says, We sing to the Lord with your heart. We're not singing for anyone except the God who gave us good news in Christ Jesus. And that frees us to sing loudly, joyfully, even if off-tone. Heaven forbid my microphone be on during one of these songs. But we sing to the Lord from our hearts. And one of the greatest evidences, the greatest joys that I have about being a, a pastor and a part of this church is the fact that on our Sunday morning gatherings, our preferences in music die to the priorities of God. Our preferences in music die to the priorities of God. We have wonderful musicians. 
wonderful musicians, but I doubt on the drive home that you and I are all listening to the same songs. <laughs> See, we have what we call here the Cribs Decades age range. The Cribs Decades age range. Everything in between. And we all like different music outside of this room. We all listen to different music, play different music on the way home. But when we gather on Sunday mornings, have you stopped to consider how special, how remarkable it is that we share one song with one unified voice and the only one reason that would ever motivate people to do this is because we have one Lord Savior, Jesus Christ. We can sing from our hearts with eternal joy, singing unto him. We look to our left and our right, and I'm sitting in a room with people I may not otherwise ever sit in a room with, and here we are singing the same song, an evidence of shared joy. What a beautiful display of God's power to reconcile vertically and horizontally. We speak, we sing, and we give thanks. Verse 20, Spirit-filled church, We'll give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Spirit-filled churches resound with way more thanksgiving than complaining. Way more thanksgiving than complaining. And here's why. Guys, we have ultimate reason to be thankful. If you are in Christ Jesus, you once were far off separated from God and one another in our sin. We have all given ourselves over in some way to being controlled by something other than God and that yielding ourselves up to something other than God is actually called sin where we long for and live for something that God has made us not to live for and long for when we've been made to love him above all things and we've fallen in that way. And the punishment that sin deserves is death. But Christ has come, submitting himself to the Father's will and for our good, has died the death that you and I deserve in our sin after living the life that we failed to. And then he rose from the dead to offer us the new life, the new life, the gift of grace by faith in his work alone that we could never earn and we would never deserve. See, it's he himself who bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. If there's ever a reason to be thankful, it's in being reconciled to the creator of the universe. Amen. If there's ever a reason to thank God in everything and for everything, not because this life is easy or there aren't even good things to celebrate. Lots of good gifts from God. Lots of hard times. And yet, through everything, we thank God because he has given us the gift of new life in Christ Jesus. The gift that I implore you to receive if you've yet to receive it. See, the only reason that you and I will have joy in Christ Jesus is if we have received this gift by faith. I can't sit here and talk to you and address the entire room assuming that all of you know this sort of joy. I celebrate the fact that many of you do know Jesus personally as your Lord and Savior who died for your sin. But agreement generally is not the same as faith personally. Agreement generally with the things of the gospel is not the same as faith personally. 
I so long for each and every one of you to know this joy that buoys us up in the midst of every sorrow that supersedes any other competing joy in this world. And I know that the only way you have it is when the Spirit takes this good news of new life and opens the eyes of your heart and you see that, yes, Christ died for my sin personally, not just in general. He died for the sin of me personally. I was a rebel, but he died to make me an adopted child of God. And so I invite you, if you've yet to place your saving faith in Christ alone, would you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father and do so because you know there is eternal thanksgiving and joy to be found. The Spirit-filled church will speak, will sing, will thank God and everything, and finally, the craziest, seemingly craziest, submitting to one another. Verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I just said the S word. (laughs) I, I know I say submit in 2019, Many people hear a cuss word. And, and next week, we're going to talk about marriage, and things are going to get much more vulgar. So <laughs> gear up. <laughs> but submitting to one another. Paul is saying there is not room for the competing agenda of selfishness and spirit-filledness in the church. They're oxymorons. They're enemies. There is no room for the, the guy or the gal who wants to politic for their campaign and their agendas and their initiatives over the glory of God and his eternal kingdom. It doesn't exist. And we submit to one another in, as like troops in a battalion. It's the language that's used here. Like right ordering, submitting to joyfully those put in leadership over us, knowing that they are servants first and foremost. We submit, we let our preferences die to God's priorities and seek his kingdom even over ours. And why would we do this? Why would we do this? It's so counterintuitive for you and I and the natural fleshly self. Well, we submit, it says, out of reverence for Christ. Verse 21, look one more time. We submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We remember The eternal king became the suffering servant. The eternal king, who had every right to stand over us in judgment of our sin and cast us off forever, well, guess what? The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, submitted himself entirely to God's plan, which was to save sinners. The most shocking reality, to draw rebels like you and I home to be with God for eternity. The Son of God submitted himself to do everything that was needed for that, including doing what we couldn't earn and what we don't deserve by dying on that cross for us and then rising from the tomb, a power we don't have, never could conjure up. And so now, saved sinners bow the knee, And they confess with the tongue that Jesus is Lord. And that frees us to serve one another, to submit to one another, pursue the good of one another, even if it requires dying to my comfort, even if it's not easy to say, you know what, I'm going to call that person. I'm going to give them some encouragement from the gospel. I'm going to check in, see how they're doing. I'm going to consider joining that small group, go to Wednesday nights, even though it doesn't fit in with my schedule right now. 
Because I love God's people whom he loves so much that he purchased them with his blood. The spirit-filled church will speak, sing, thank, and submit to one another. The spirit-filled church will not be controlled by anything else except for complete filling, monopolization by the spirit of God himself. And the spirit-filled church knows they are helpless to to do this by themselves. And so they pray. They ask God, which is what we are going to do in response. We are going to sing unto the Lord with our hearts. We are going to give him thanks in in these songs. And during this time and always, I invite you to pray. Ask God to fill us, lead us, guide us by the Holy Spirit. Amen? Would you join me in prayer before we turn to respond to God in both worship and communion? Father, we thank you so much that you are indeed alive, reigning, and active. The same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead now lives in the believer, bringing new life to our mortal bodies. And we see that new life in the church, your your New Testament temple where the spirit of God reigns. And so, Lord, we ask that your spirit would fill us, would lead us, would guide us, use us for your purposes and priorities as we die to our preferences, seeking your kingdom instead of ours, all doing so not because we are good people, we are the rebels who needed saving, and now we live for the Savior who saved us. Lord, make us a spirit-filled church. We thank you for your spirit being here, and we ask that we'd be submissive to your spirit's leading now and always. It's in his name we pray. Amen.